All right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, We heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's living and active word, and let's go to him now and ask for his help. Our Father, we do thank you for another opportunity to come before your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is inspired and inerrant and living and active. And Lord, we pray now that by your Spirit you would take your word and apply it to our lives. Write it upon our hearts. Use it to pierce between bow and marrow, soul and spirit, and to bring out those areas of our lives that we need to repent of. Use your word to shine light upon those areas of darkness where we hide. And Father, we pray that you would use your word to encourage us in faithfulness. Show us herein the glory and the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We've been slowly working through the book of Genesis for the last couple of months now, and and we've seen incredible truths about our Creator, God, who is himself eternal and without beginning, himself before time, the Creator of time. We've seen how God has created all things, and the climax of his creative purposes was to place Man and woman, both made in His image to rule over His created glory. And we've seen how man and woman placed within the garden to know God and to love God and to submit and obey God was the task of their image bearing. The tree placed there within the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meant as a reminder that they were to know and obey God alone. What He said was good and evil should stand. We've seen, though, how chapter 3 has introduced to us the fall. 
How Adam and Eve went from knowing God to hiding from God. How Adam and Eve went from loving God to now wanting to discard of God. Adam loving Eve and now wanting to discard Eve. Spurning God out of a love for self. Trusting in what they saw over and against what they heard. Last week we witnessed the subtle but destructive temptation Satan used to bring Eve and Adam out from under God's word, submitting to it, honoring and obeying God as the creator king, to now in a position of being over top of God's word, judging God's word, second-guessing what God had said, and second-guessing God's good character. Did God actually say that? There, Satan used the serpent to lead the woman. And, and, and the woman who led the man to rebel against God. The whole creational order of relationships was reversed. Sin's decay had already begun wreaking havoc within God's world. As a result, mankind fell from grace. It was the beginning of paradise lost. And what ensued was a world filled with shame, guilt, suffering, Sadness, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. This is an incredibly striking phrase, I think. It's astounding that Moses writes this as a, as a negative result of sin. Their eyes were opened. To have open eyes, for us at least, is a very good thing. Usually, right? Open your eyes. Look what's in front of you. We want to know. We want to be aware. We want to see all and know all. But perhaps that's just it. To have open eyes is to have closed ears. No longer would Adam and Eve, nor the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, trust in what God said, listening to God's authoritative word through their ears, but now they would trust and go after what they saw, obeying the lust of their eyes. Eve made her decision to eat of the fruit of the tree because, look at verse 6, She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Twice, Moses makes the point that Eve was no longer submitting to what she heard in God's word, but only what she saw. But it's also clear that to have their eyes opened was now to be aware of their own guilt. Nakedness carries with it an association of shame, at least from this point on. To have their eyes opened was to no longer be clothed and wrapped in innocence. They now knew evil, and as a result, were acquainted with shame. We understand something, I think, of what's going on here when we think about our children. There's a certain innocence, isn't there, that we want to preserve in our children? There's, a, there's, there's something that we want to keep precious and pure. I don't want them to know about and think about the complexities of intimacy and marriage. That's not for my kids to think about. I don't want them to know about or think about the many adult themes or things which are going on in the news around us, which would intrude in an unhealthy way upon the innocence of their childhood. Parents don't let their kids watch more mature movies, not because the kids won't understand it, but precisely because they very well might understand what's going on. And it'd be inappropriate for the child to know that. And hear me out. I'm not saying that children are without sin. And we all know that. Kids are sinners. No one taught them to lie. Every child comes into this world sinful and under Adam's guilt. I'm not denying original sin. 
But what I'm saying here is that there, there's an innocence that children have which is later lost to adulthood. I think it's something like that which was lost in verse 6. Before Adam and Eve ate, they were beautifully unaware of each other's nakedness. Consumed with God, knowing God and serving each other out of selfless love, there was a childlike faith, if you will. But now in verse 7, that innocence is lost. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They were now acquainted with sin. And in their visible nakedness, they knew that they also stood spiritually naked before God. Their guilt and their shame would now be seen by him. And what follows, I want us to see, at least this morning, three things Adam and Eve do as a result of their sin. I want us to see three things that come as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. The first thing they do, and and we looked at this already last week, but it's good to remind ourselves again. The first thing they do is they try and save themselves. Adam and Eve try and save themselves. How do they do that? Well, by covering up their nakedness with fig leaves, right? Later, God will come and and he'll cover Adam and Eve in animal skins. In other words, God will shed blood to clothe them in their shame and nakedness. God will uh, use only the sacrifice of shed blood as a means of covering sin. The animal sacrifice that took place to clothe Adam and Eve would be a type of the better sacrifice to come in a future Messiah, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Christ dies on the Hebrew holiday of Yom Kippur, which is the Hebrew day of covering. And God planned it just this way to show us that our sin could only be covered by Christ. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 13 that in order for anyone to be right with God and to have their sins forgiven, they must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be clothed in His righteousness. And Adam and Eve, in clothing themselves with fig leaves, are in essence trying to save themselves. They're trying to get right with God on their own terms. You remember high school, that one girl is always dating the wrong guy? We knew that girl. Her friends were always saying, why do you keep dating these dorks? Until that one new student came to to high school. And... uh, And this guy stood out. Uh, He was different. He was a jock, and he played on the sports teams. And and the parents loved him. The the teachers loved him. uh, And everyone loved him. And and this girl starts dating that guy. And even her friends are saying, yes, this is it. He does all the right things. He he walks her to her locker between classes. Uh, He'll he'll bring flowers early in the morning. Uh, Even her parents say, wow. you've picked the right one. You know how the story goes. She goes to a party, and uh, lo and behold, she makes a wrong decision. She cheats on the guy. She messes up badly. Uh, Everyone asks, what did you do? Why did you mess this good thing up? So, being the smart girl that she is, she goes and she gets flowers, and she knocks on the guy's door, And there she is with a bouquet of flowers, and he opens the door, and she says, here you go, we're going to get back together now. Is that how it works? No. She wronged him. She doesn't get to set the rules of how they get to come back together. 
And so it is with God. God established the relationship in the first place, didn't he? He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Death was required. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and so death is what they deserved. They couldn't just walk up to him with a bouquet of fig leaves and say, here you go, God. We're cool again, right? No. Friends, that's what every other religion outside of Jesus Christ does. Every other religion says if you do these religious things, if you follow these religious rules, if you pray this many times a day, if you wear these kind of clothes, whatever it is, anything other than resting in the sacrifice of what Jesus accomplished in his death upon the cross is just fig leaves trying to save yourself. Just so we're clear here, what's up with Adam and Eve eating the fruit and apparently not dying? I think a couple of things. First, death in the Bible is understood in at least three different ways. There's physical death, we know that. There's spiritual death, that's where you're spiritually cut off from God. And at a spiritual level, you don't even want to pursue any kind of relationship with God. And then thirdly, there's eternal death. That's being eternally separated from God after your physical death in what the Bible will later refer to as hell. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced immediately spiritual death. They died right then and there, and this whole passage, I think, substantiates that point. They hid from God because they were spiritually dead. But their spiritual death inaugurates their physical death. They would eventually die. Chapter 5, verse 4 tells us that Adam would live to be 930 years old, but that, yes, he actually did physically die. If he hadn't have sinned, he wouldn't have died. And then, after that, well, would have come eternal life. And, and, but the Bible is clear here that Adam dies, and, and then there's eternal death. And, and, and all people, as sinners, because all people die. I don't know if you've heard the latest statistic, but 10 out of 10 people actually do die. Which means to say that 10 out of 10 people actually do sin. It's interesting that with Adam... He spiritually dies immediately. As Kent Hughes remarks, in an instant, the original couple passed from sinlessness into sin, from harmony into alienation, from a world of trust to now complete distrust, from ease into disease, from one moment life and in the next moment death, and from openness into hiding. It leads to our second point. Not only did Adam and Eve try and save themselves by covering up their sin, they also tried to hide themselves. They tried to hide themselves. Look there at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, were they immediately aware that their fig leaves could not really hide their shame? Perhaps. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden, and upon hearing such glorious sounds, they hide. Previously, the sound would have made their hearts, I think, jump with joy at the experience of being in the presence of God. But now, at the very same sound, rather than invoking love, instead it strikes fear. There's a sudden dread which causes them to run and hide. Remember my dad in what I think was a midlife crisis came home one day with a brand new V8 Z28 Camaro. 
Uh, you could hear this thing blocks down the road, that low rumble of a muscle car. And I remember being excited hearing that car come down blocks away, and it'd take another minute for him to pull into the driveway. But I also remember when I came home with bad grades and I heard that same sound, I instantly went to my room. I did not want to see my dad. Uh, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, and they hide. This is what sin does. It causes us to run from God. And this is how it works, I think. In Adam's sin, he knew he had offended God. His eyes were open, and he knew he sinned. His life was now marked by offense. He was in rebellion, and therefore he was, as in rebellion, a rebel. But he knew he couldn't dispose of God. Sin's desire within us is to get God out of the picture. We don't want God there. We don't want God here because we want to do what we want to do. The sin we want to pursue is an affront to who God is. A choosing sin is saying, God, you are not beautiful. You are not worthy. You are not the greatest delight in all existence. This, this thing right here, this is what I want. This, this one night stand, this extra drink, this good grade on a plagiarized paper, this relationship that I've just got to have, uh, th- th- this extra sense of ease. When we choose these things over God, we are essentially lifting up a middle finger to God. And we know deep down inside that that's not good. So we want God out of the picture. And since we can't remove God, we fool ourselves by hiding. Like the prophet Jonah, we run away from God. Like Adam and Eve, we hide among the trees. I think some of you all know what this is like firsthand, don't you? When you've jumped into the pool of having a good time, when you've dove headfirst into some cesspool of sin, the last place you want to be is where? Right here in church. You don't want to have to deal with the weird, gnawing feeling, which we call conviction. So what do you do? You hide. You keep at a distance. At one level, we are entirely ashamed of our sin, and and thus we're scared of being vulnerable. Exposing sin means accepting the truth that you've messed up. Doing that means, I think, being vulnerable. And look, as sinners, we hate being vulnerable. That's exactly what the light of God's grace calls us to, though, isn't it? We'll see here more in a minute how God does that. But, but see, he simply calls out to Adam. Adam, where are you? That's a question meant to invite Adam into a place of vulnerability. At the moment Adam heard that question, he had two choices. Stay hidden. God asked where I am. I guess he doesn't know. I guess my hiding from him is really working. Stay hidden. Stay in the dark. It's safe here. Or... Adam could have come out. He could have stepped into the light and embraced the vulnerability of God's holy presence. And many of us, even though we're here this morning, many of us are probably still kind of hiding. We've still maybe got one foot hidden in a safe, dark place. If I could just encourage you to step out into the light this morning. There's a goodness and a grace behind the awkwardness of being vulnerable. 
It, it opens you up to examination. Yes, and that's uncomfortable. And it shows you in all of your nakedness, all your weakness and sins and your failings. But it gets you out from hiding. And it gets you into a place where true redemption can happen. Friends, nothing kills the soul more quickly than hiding your guilt, than covering the shame of your sins in isolation and in loneliness. What ends up being so destructive in hiding from God is that you never bring yourself to hide in Christ. That's what makes Adam's hiding here so sad. In hiding from God, he took himself away from hiding in God's grace. But once Adam and Eve step out into the light and and they become vulnerable, it's only five short verses until we get to the glory of the gospel of redemption in verse 15. Friends, God doesn't want you to be vulnerable just for the sake of seeing you weak and exposed. That's not his goal. No, it's only accepting your weakness where God can get you to accept the strength of his grace, the strength of the power of Christ working in and through you. Now give up your hiding. Become vulnerable. Come to Christ. As we read earlier from Psalm 139, and Kevin prayed for us out of that passage, uh, the psalmist asks, where can you go from God's spirit? Where can you flee from his presence? If we ascend into heaven, there's God. If we make our bed in Sheol, God is there. We all know this, right? Adam knew this, that you can't really hide from God. But sin makes us do it anyway. I think one simple application from this passage is this. Sin makes you stupid, right? Sin makes you buy into the delusion that you can be somewhere where God is not. It's just not a thoughtful process right there. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is eternal. He knows what you're going to do. There's nowhere you could go where you could successfully hide from God. Well, except that is if you come to God himself. He's given you the only hiding place acceptable enough in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. As Paul tells us in Colossians 3, those who repent and put their faith in Jesus have their lives hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear hidden with him, in him, in glory. That is, if you believe in Jesus, when our eternal, omniscient, all-seeing, holy God looks at you, he sees Christ. When God asks, where are you? The Christian can only answer, here I am, in Christ. We need to see here in this passage the third thing that Adam and Eve do as a result of sin. We've seen how they tried to save themselves by covering up their shame with fig leaves. How they tried to hide themselves. And now lastly, we want to see how because of sin, Adam and Eve tried to excuse themselves. They excused themselves. Look there at the rest of the passage. God's question of Adam, where are you, drew out the shame-faced man and woman. Adam, wearing his ridiculous fig leaves, now stands there and, and kind of mumbles back his reply. But notice how Adam's response actually contains no admission of wrongdoing. See that? He only said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In other words, it seems that Adam was more aware of his nakedness and shame than he was of his actual sin against God. 
Something cosmically and covenantally serious had just happened. The federal head of all humanity just plunged the entire race of men into the prison of sin and guilt. But all Adam could do here was express his fear and shame. The only thing that Adam truly confessed to here was a, was a feeling. I was afraid. Adam knew he had broken God's command. But in his new self-focused state, bound as he now was to sin and sinful thinking, Adam was more concerned about how he felt than about his sin against God. Adam is deflecting blame here, isn't he? I'm hiding, God, because you came into the room. If you didn't walk in on me, I wouldn't have hid. Paul reminds us that this is still part and parcel of our Adamic DNA. In Romans 3, Paul makes the startling point that actually no one seeks after God. No, not one. Everyone flees from the presence of God. By the way, this is why we as a church, and I know this is true of Aletheia as well, we don't think we can ever be cool enough to attract sinners. Right? There's like no amount of hipsterizing we could do to make sinners say, whoa, those jeans you wear make me want to worship God. All of us, like Adam, want to run. We want to hide. But even when we're confronted with God, we we deflect. We blame others. We blame society. We blame our parents. We blame our upbringing. We blame our genes and DNA. But we never want to take moral responsibility. Like Adam, we all excuse ourselves. It's interesting to me that God calls out to Adam first here. Even though Eve ate the fruit, it's clear it was Adam who was responsible. He was the covenant head, the one man tasked with representing all humanity. And so, opposite of how Satan went about things, right? Using the animal to lead the woman, to lead the man, to rebel against God. Here, God seeks the man who then draws out the woman and ends with interrogating the serpent. Next week, we'll see God first judge the serpent and then judge Eve and then end with his judgment and curse upon Adam. In God's order of things, the man Adam bore the primary responsibility. But Adam, the ultimate deflector, was still trying to excuse himself. When God asks in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response was purely diabolical. Or the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. These are the words of a man who is spiritually dead. Do you remember Adam's very first words? The beautiful poem of delight he performed upon seeing his bride, the apple of his eye. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Eve, his helper, his sister, his wife, his lover. She was his cosmic queen, literally the perfect archetypal woman whom God himself walked down the aisle for Adam to love and enjoy for all eternity. But now, when God calls Adam to accountability for his sin, whoop, right under the bus. (laughs) The woman, her over there, she gave it to me to eat. He doesn't even call her by her name. Adam is defensive and he's devious and he's quite devilish here too. Not only does he shift the blame to his wife, but he also points judgment at God. God, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit to eat. 
In other words, if, if you hadn't created her in the first place, we wouldn't have been in this mess at all. It's sad to be sure, but how many husbands are making the same excuses today? Adam, like Satan, argued that a better God would have done things differently. It would have given him a better wife, a better life, better circumstances. This shift in blame is tantamount, though, to blasphemy. And we, too, I think, blaspheme God when we shake our fist at God for the situations we find ourselves in. God, it's your fault that I'm going through this right now. God now turns his questioning toward Eve, and like Adam, she, too, passes the buck. She blames the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And notice how this, too, is actually an attack on God. Remember verse 1 of chapter 3 where it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made? I think Eve is saying, God, that serpent you made, he made me do it. Martin Luther, I think, is right when he has both Adam and Eve answering God's questions with the unified, Thou, Lord, Thou hast sinned. There's no more clear evidence for the horror of spiritual death than blaming the all-wise and holy God for our own transgressions. And to be sure, Adam and Eve's descendants, all of us, have continued this blame game generation after generation. We all try and excuse ourselves by pointing the finger at others. Just turn on your news station, whether it's Fox or MSNBC, what are they both doing? Those guys... Those guys are the reason why we're in trouble. And this is what sin has done to us as a race. Since our fallen Adam, we all try and save ourselves. Because of sin, we all try and hide ourselves. And because of sin, we all try and excuse ourselves. That's who we are as fallen men and women. But this pattern, these these three different ways in which we try and cover up our sin hide our sin, or pass the blame to someone else, they all expose within us a deeper realization. They highlight the truth, and I think we realize it. Adam and Eve realized it, that we cannot deal with sin ourselves. Right? Adam and Eve's deflection and shifting of blame shows that by themselves, they could not handle the responsibility of sin. It highlights their need for a substitute. What do you think Adam and Eve deserved? That's a, that's a right question to ask of this test. Did they deserve justice or did they deserve grace? Did Adam and Eve deserve God to show them and give them punishment or mercy? If you're answering that they deserved grace, that they and we deserve mercy, then you may misunderstand what it means to actually sin against God. Don't you might misunderstand what mercy and grace are as well. If you think that Adam and Eve deserved mercy, then you may actually be repeating the same sinful pattern of excusing your sin. You're saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. God let them off the hook. But consider the crime. And I use the word crime intentionally here because I think this whole passage is set up as a trial within a court of law, right? With God the judge asking and interrogating the defendants. A crime had been committed, a law was broken, and justice must be served. If you're in a court of law for a speeding ticket, 
You were caught and you were going 50 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour neighborhood. Right? And even the sign that said there are deaf children playing here. And the judge says, how do you plead? And you say, well, I was wearing my seatbelt. Won't you forgive me? Would the judge be a good judge or a bad judge if he said, all right, forget about it? No, a bad judge. If you were brought to the court of law for cheating on your taxes, and you respond, well, can't you just forgive me this one time? Uh, you know, I, I tip my waiter. No. If you were brought to a court of law for murder, would he be a good judge or a bad judge if he listened to the defendant who said, ah, forgive me? All right, go on. No, friends, infinitely more so of a holy and just God. God cannot just wipe our sins under a rug. He can't say, ah, forget about it. And it's not just the seriousness of the crime. It's the seriousness of the crime against the God we've sinned against. What was deserved was immediate death immediately. Friends, perhaps God is calling out to some of us this morning to realize the punishment that we've borne. And it's good and just and holy for God to do this. Did you notice the gracious tenor, though, of God's questioning throughout this whole section? He didn't just strike them dead. God didn't come storming into the Garden of Eden, arms flailing, fingers pointing, his anger and judgment raging. Adam, come here. God calmly and, dare I say, graciously came and asked a question. Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Absolutely. But here was God bringing together both his truth and his grace. The truth of his justice, God will bring to light the sin that was committed. Adam will be held responsible. But God does so also with grace and mercy. He did not kill Adam right then and there. In fact, his very questioning was meant to draw Adam out so that Adam himself would come nearer to God. Come out of hiding, my son, and let me talk to you about your sin. I'm not going to downplay it. I'm going to deal with it. But all the grace that God shows here and how he deals with Adam. God will eventually show Adam and Eve his continued justice and grace in the rest of chapter 3, and we'll look at this next week, where both attributes will coalesce in the promise of a Savior, right? An ultimate substitute in chapter 3, verse 15, who would at once bear the shame and take the blame for Adam's sin and our sin. On him, our sins will be placed. And there upon the cross in Jesus' death, the truth of God's justice will come down, but also God's mercy and God's grace. And there we'll find redemption. In that moment, in the death of the Son of God, all sons of Adam will be offered life, eternal life. God doesn't owe anyone forgiveness. What is deserved is justice. He doesn't need to show patience. After verse 6, God had every right to implement the promised punishment with no questions asked. But instead of putting Adam and Eve to death on the spot, which would have been good and right for God to do, what does he do? He invites Adam into the light. He graciously, like a gentle father, says, Adam, where are you? Again, friends, is God calling out to you this morning? Where are you? Come out of your hiding place. You're self-covering. Don't shift the blame of your sin somewhere else. God says, come to me. 
Come to my son and place your shame and place your guilt upon him. And he alone can take the blame for you. Perhaps you've been hiding in church, right? For years you've used the church as your fig leaves. Friends, God sees you. The fig leaf may fool us. We might think you're a very religious person, but it doesn't fool God. God is calling to you as well. Come out. Take them off, and for the first time in your overly religious life, become vulnerable. Step into the light of God's grace, into the freedom of trusting Jesus. Friends, I pray that whatever secret, dark hiding place you keep running back to, that place where the pain and torment of guilt keeps compounding, I pray that the gentle call of God's word draws you out into the light of Jesus. Where are you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not quench, until I bring justice to victory, and in my name all the nations will hope. Jesus is calling us. Let's go and shift our blame in him alone. Let's pray.